are we? Where are we going? What does the future hold for humanity? These are the kinds of questions asked and answered every day by career futurists. Joining us this week, Ari Wallach, founder of Longpath Labs and author of Longpath, Becoming the Ancestors Our Future Needs. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, wishing you and all of our listeners a Shana Tova as we close out uh, the Jewish New Year, uh, Jewish Old Year, now becoming a new year, 5782 becoming 5783. Uh, any Rosh Hashanah plans? Well, I want to stop writing 5782 on my checks. Um, but seriously, I think... It'll uh, take a while. It takes a while. It takes a little while. Yeah, yeah. It, takes a, it takes a month. Uh, you know, I'm going to be a, a quiet Rosh with uh, with some of the immediate family. I think uh, I'm going to be making some brisket and uh, salt and pepper kugel um, and really trying to take some time to reflect and celebrate all that we have around us. That's a wonderful thought uh, as we uh, come closer, uh, not just to God, but uh, to our fellow human beings uh, and uh, think about how we can improve ourselves. Always a good idea. And uh, something that really taps into our sense of national purpose, national unity as a Jewish people that has uh, been with us uh, from the beginning of time. And something that I think we'll talk about, something maybe missing in our society today. Uh, we talk about the lack of shared identity, uh, shared uh, nationhood uh, here in the United States uh, and other places as well in the world. Um, reminded at times like Rosh Hashanah uh, that we do continue to have that as a Jewish people which is likely why Mark Twain noted that we continue to endure. Indeed, indeed. But before we get to all of that, some news this week or some things to discuss this week. Yes, I know you Jewish want to give Insider. us a Jewish yeah. Insider in fact with a with a great exclusive story uh, on Morningstar. I think we've talked about this on the show in the past uh, for people who have not been tracking major concern uh, continuing to increase uh, within the ESG industry. Uh, it's the Environment, uh, Social Governance Movement, ESG. Uh, the rating systems by some of these companies, including Morningstar, Chicago-based financial research firm, uh, that looks at companies and sort of started with the sustainability movement and environment, but has moved into a much broader set of screens for investors that includes human rights in some cases. And wouldn't you know it, the BDS movement uh, has crept into that part uh, of ESG. And we've found evidence uh, over the last uh, several months and years of uh, Sustainalytics, the ESG subsidiary of Morningstar, being clearly very engaged uh, in BDS activity. Uh, and uh, we are now seeing, uh, despite uh, attempts by Morningstar to uh, put this under the rug uh, with a uh, law firm report from White and Case uh, that tried to clear them any wrongdoing, but actually ended up backfiring with 144 pages of evidence of BDS activity. We're seeing states around the country calling for investigations, activation of the anti-BDS laws, and most recently an assemblyman, Dan Rosenthal, in New York, asking the New York Attorney General to open an investigation into Morningstar's practices, Jewish Insider with the exclusive story on that. But we've seen 19 attorneys general investigating, requesting documents, uh, about the same number of state treasurers looking at this. Arizona has activated its state anti-BDS law, as has South Carolina now, 
nothing yet from Florida or Texas uh, or New Jersey, uh, states where we have seen this in the past. But uh, yeah, very big problem uh, within the financial industry, one that people may not be tracking. Not as obvious to people as, hey, Ben & Jerry's says they're not going to sell anymore in Israel. That's something that's sort of like in your face, you get it. This is sort of harder to understand on its face because their ratings, its research that is enabling divestment or in some cases actually urging and encouraging divestment, harassing companies. Uh, but it's something that uh, the community needs to really be taking a very close look at. Yeah, you know, Rich, uh, we've been talking about this for a while because here at the Limited Liability Podcast, we were always ahead of the curve. Um, but but it's important because the social justice movement is important in this country. Fighting for people's rights is important in this country. The environment is important in this country uh, and in our world. But those who are hijacking that movement or uh, trying to infiltrate that movement and use it as a platform for anti-Semitism, um, we need to call that out when we see it. And, you know, We've been hearing about it bubbling below the surface for months now. You've been a leader on this issue. Um, but I've heard others uh, in the Biden administration start to talk more and more about it. And I think we're going to be hearing more and more about it from people publicly in the Biden administration who just aren't going to stand for it. Uh, so, you know, what do they say? Uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So I'm glad uh, the attention is on this. We're singling out Morningstar. This could be happening at other firms like MSCI. There should be uh, questions being asked. The evidence from Morningstar is so public now, it became easy to focus on what they're doing there. And hopefully, if changes are adopted at Morningstar, they have not been yet. They, they claim they're making changes, but the changes they're making are largely superficial. Um, if they actually were to root out the core assumptions driving um, their systemic bias against Israel, it could serve as a template for other firms as well in this industry. And I'd also just caution, you know, there's a lot of partisanship over the issue at the moment. I have views on ESG more broadly. I'm sure others do as well. I know people who are very passionate in favor of ESG from a climate change and environment perspective. I know people who are on the very uh, diametrically opposed side of that and, and hate ESG and think it's corrupting the investment world uh, and, and not actually, uh, you know, delivering good results from an investment perspective. But wherever you stand on on the overall ESG issue, if you are a supporter of Israel, if you are concerned about BDS, you can definitely come together in a bipartisan way to say, this can't be a part of ESG, period. Indeed, indeed. Um, Rich, before we get to our guests, any uh, Iran deal updates for us? I mean, I know... Uh, it would it's still coming. Week. It's coming. It's still coming. Yeah? I, know. I'm, I could be a futurist, Jared. I could be a futurist here. We're going to talk about what that means. But I, I see an Iran deal in the future. It's very bad still. Uh, but, but seriously, uh, I think what we may end up seeing is uh, the first act of that. Be very watchful. There's reports that uh, the U.S. will authorize the release of $7 billion out of South Korea as part of a prisoner exchange. But it's all obviously wrapped up in the larger nuclear deal. Um, this will be a very big concern on hostage policy. It'll be concern on giving funds to the Iranians ahead of any announcement of a deal and notification to Congress. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the deal, as I've described in the past, is still there, perhaps a little bit on hold till the midterm elections. Um, but, you know, we also saw reports, Jared, of the Supreme Leader on death's door, um, now reversing that. The New York Times was reporting he had surgery. 
wasn't seen in public, did come out in public now over the weekend. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons, whether it's the terrorism piece, the human rights piece, anybody's seen that they brutally murdered a woman because she wouldn't wear the hijab uh, in, in Iran, the crackdown on women going on right now, the, uh, they've sentenced LGBT activists to death. I mean, if you're a progressive, right, if you're the Biden administration, I don't get it. I just don't get it. The hypocrisy, it's just dripping everywhere here, right? It, it, on every level, this is the wrong time to be lifting sanctions of this regime. I know people know where I'm coming from. Uh, but just to remind them, thank you. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, why don't we move to our guest? Because uh, I'm really excited for a thoughtful uh, conversation. Ari Wallach is a futurist, a social system strategist. He's the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, which is an initiative focused on bringing long-term thinking and coordinated behavior to the individual, organizational, and societal realms in order to ensure humanity flourishes on an ecologically thriving planet Earth for centuries to come, something Rich worries about a lot. Ari is also the author of the new book, Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs. Ari Wallach, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So Ari, people have described you as a futurist. What is a futurist and does that apply? And if it doesn't, what's the right word? Uh, great question. Uh, first of all, so it's interesting. The, the term futurist is used a lot. Uh, more often than not, it's kind of a self-anointed term. There's no professional. I mean, there's a semi, there's a professional organization for it, but you kind of opt into it. Uh, traditionally, when you say futurist, people will assume you're someone who walks up and down stages you know, giving kind of like TED style talks, talking about quantum computing or AI or what the latest next great technology is going to be that's going to change the world. And I think it's an it's an apt description, but we have to recognize that the the idea of kind of futuring in and of itself goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? There's always been folks who are kind of trying to divine the future of what will be uh, more often than not in service to sovereign <laughs> kings and, and, and whatnot. And obviously this goes back to the Oracle of Delphi. Um, Professional kind of working futures like me uh, will more often than not fall into the, you know, like I, this camp where, yes, we're on stage. That's part of what we do. Um, but a lot of it is working with, and, I, and, I'm, and I'll use the term client loosely, clients or folks. And sometimes we're in-house. So there are full-time futurists uh, in the intelligence community at the within the kind of the United Nations, within a lot of corporations. And what folks like us will do is we are not divining the future. We're not saying the future is going to be X. What we're saying is in this kind of the newer model of those of us who are kind of make our living doing this, we say, look, here are three or four possible futures or scenarios. And it's not about worst case or best case, but they're kind of stories of how things will play out. And again, it's not about predicting, it's about preparing. It's about preparing the folks that we're working with to think about these different avenues and, and vectors that may unfold. And there's a whole process to that we can get into if you want. And within that, and what that's meant to do, it's meant to help folks think, okay, if these three different things could happen, how do I make sure I'm not caught off guard? And what can I do to prepare? And more importantly, within those kind of stories are kind of baked in what we call signals, signals of things that you should be looking for that could lead to one of these stories happening. So again, it's about, that's the kind of classic way of futuring. And so, and, and kind of what a futurist is. The reason I kind of am ambivalent someone about the term is because again, within pop culture, it's kind of taken as this kind of crystal ball and, it, and it's far from that. Um, I put myself, and especially within with writing this book, Long Path, in a slightly different category than what I just laid out because I'm, 
less advocating for three or four different scenarios of what could happen or what might happen, and much more advocating for folks to take seriously the question of what do we want to happen? What do we want to see unfold? Um, and it's not, and but again, with rigor. So it's not about being Pollyannish and saying, you know, mana from heaven for everyone, although that may be what you want to unfold. It's really thinking very seriously and critically about what your kind of long-term vision and goal is. And a lot about what I talk about in the book, Long Path, is about long-term vision and goal in a way that transcends your own lifespan, which is what gets me into hot water with a lot of folks because a lot of people don't like to talk about that, but that's really what we're talking about. Um, so we, we use the term futuring and futurism or applied futurist to move away from kind of the crystal ball way of thinking about it and more about how we help people prepare. So, so just to sort of unpack that a little bit, because, you know, like if you're in the finance industry, right, like, you know, you're a big investment firm, a hedge fund, the banks, you know, on down there, every, everybody who covers a certain portfolio is looking at risk, right? And looking yep. at scenarios and contingencies, because it's going to plan on, you know, maybe, you know, how they're doing their investing and what, if this suddenly, if Russia invades Ukraine, what's going to happen and what's going to happen next in the invasion? And what if, what if he's going to, you know, use nuclear weapons? And what if, you know, well, what if the war ends today? What if sanctions go this way? Or, you know, what if China decides to do this or that tomorrow? So I feel like in in my world, like, you know, for geopolitics, national security, I, I, I see that sort of, you know, short term, medium term type risk analysis already. Where does this sort of differ? Where does this differ? This is more like I'm looking at the world and, you know, we could have a pandemic. We could have a real pandemic. Um, here are the telltale signs. But that would have come like 20 years ago, or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or 30 years ago in, in your case. Or, or is it something completely different? I mean, look, so at Long Path Labs, our organization, we work on national security issues. We, we work with the UN on global climate refugee flows over the next 40 years and what that will look like. So it's still within what we kind of think of slightly within the risk mitigation category. And that's always kind of where kind of classic futuring has, has lived. Um, but... The shift that I took specifically in this book that's that's very different and why this book is much more personal uh, in many ways is because it's about what individuals and parents and leaders can do to shape those futures given the knowledge of kind of megatrends and things that are happening and taking it out of the realm of, let's say, just the National Security Council or the Situation Room, where a lot of this, you know, Andy Marshall, the Pentagon, a lot, where a lot of where this always existed was to be honest in very kind of elite high leverage positions what we what I'm doing in the with within the book and within long path within this mindset was really kind of stepping back and saying okay what can like those of us who aren't in those rooms the several hundred or thousand who are you know who are in those very specific rooms what can the rest of us do to kind of help shape those futures in a way that goes beyond risk mitigation which is kind of you know cover your backside in many ways, and more about how do we actually shape the ones that we want. And and when we can get into it, it's the core of it is really about how you are at a human-to-human layer with other individuals, because that at scale, I argue in the book, is as if not more important than whether or not we deploy the right ships uh, in the China, you know, in the South China Sea. It's important. But over the long term of the Homo sapien projects, over the next several thousand, if not several hundred thousand years, how we are morally 
to one another and to ourselves and those under kind of psychodynamic issues will have a greater impact on the long-term trajectory of homo sapiens than thinking about it through purely a risk mitigation lens. And, and Ari, is the idea that we're, we're, we're losing that or we've lost that or we need to work on that? Like, like what is, what's All the of prescription? So we've lost, yeah. So it's interesting. The, 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 so the book has been out for a couple of weeks now and you know, you never know. You're going to you put something out there and you'll see, you know, how, how the market responds to it. Most of the kind of the emails I've gotten back have been from rabbis, priests, imams, <laughs> and from parents. And by, by the way, not just parents, but parents who are, see, you know, people saying, hey, I bought this book at the airport bookstore thinking it would help me run my Fortune, you know, 100 company better. I realized it's actually helping me be a better parent or a better spouse or a better partner. And I think both that and people kind of in the religious settings and, and other folks obviously are connecting with the book is that it's, it's to your point it is that we've kind of lost the larger thread of what we're doing, right? The, the argument that I make very early in the book is that we're kind of in this intertidal moment. Um, intertidal, if we're, you know, in, in oceanography terms, is that space between high and low tide. And so you can think of it almost, a, almost like as an interregnum, as a kind of an in-between place. And when, as a kind of historian anthropologist, when I step back and I say, look, the, the last m- massive intertidal was obviously hunter-gatherer, to uh, you know the agricultural revolution when we kind of really shifted, and that's where we have the creation of monomyths and God and all sorts of interesting kind of social technologies. We're going through something like that right now. The kind of the narratives that we use to run a society, especially in the West, in many ways are collapsing. You actually see that play out in day-to-day politics in the U.S. in terms of people's kind of trust in institutions writ large. So in this intertidal moment. I'm arguing again, arguing a lot apparently, that we need to have a different kind of mindset and within kind of embedded as a core principle of the long path mindset is we have to um, look very closely at who we are as individuals, like actual Rich, actual Jared, actual Ari, and what, what are the nerves that made us who we are and how we act and behave with those around us, and how can we become more self-aware so that we can do what we do as humans better in a more ethical and moral stance. I know what you guys are thinking. This sounds very familiar. This sounds a lot like Judaism. You're right. Um, uh, <laughs> and then the book's out just in time for the high holidays, so that's yeah. good. So, and, it's a, you know. and I, I wrote the op-ed for the, you know, for... And what, I, what I like is, is that just yeah. by being Jewish, I could get a job somewhere now, so this is good. This is... Yeah, like, okay. exactly, yeah. And, yeah. So, and so, the and look, but this long path, this mindset is a kind of... core. I, it, it comes a lot. It's, it's very much coming from my wisdom tradition known as, you know, Judaism. But with if we step back and we see Judaism as a kind of social technology, the thing that in many ways are created by humans to help us move better and, you know, adapt better to the world as it is, I'm taking what works for me in the thinking and the underlying kind of ontology and truths and maxims of Judaism and incorporating them in a kind of a secular way to allow people to navigate the intertidal better. Right. This this book is not a self-help book in any way, shape or form, but it is a book and it is an idea and a mindset to help people make sense of the moment that we're in. Uh, it's, so think, you can think of, you know, I, I think of long path, the mindset as a kind of social technology, as a way of kind of moving through this moment that allows you to move through it more successfully. And most importantly, you know, the subtitle is long path, becoming the great ancestors, our future needs. If you use this mindset and this way of thinking and seeing the world and behaving and acting in the world, what that leads to 
is allowing us to move from like, eh, meh, maybe making it through this moment to actually helping shape the future in a way that several generations, hundreds of generations from now, they'll be able to look back and say, wow, those were great ancestors. They did the things that we needed done to help us get to a moment of flourishing. Again, lots of corollaries here with Judaism. Can, can, I, can I just ask, what, what is the moment that we're talking about here? When did it start? That's a great um, question. And, and, and what, what are sort of the, the paths that we have in front of us that you're identifying? So we're not going to say Trump's election, right? I'm sorry, too soon? I too imagine soon. it started before too January soon. of, uh, of, of 2021. Before January 6th, before Trump's election. Yeah, okay. uh, look, I think those are all kind of like manifestations of... Look, many people feel like we moved in this post we went from the modern to the postmodern, probably dropping with the, the, the first atomic weapon. But in reality, uh, for me, it's probably been the past 10, 15 years. It's correlated with technology, with decentralization, with internet. Um, I don't think technology is the driver of this per se. I think it's something much deeper. I see us moving into this intertidal as all of these things are collapsing. One of them one of the main drivers of that is we're kind of at the tail end of what started probably about roughly about 400 years ago with with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the kind of disenchantment of humans from nature. So this idea that we could break down the universe and the world in such a way into these like measurable bits and from there fully understand the system is is was important and necessary to overcome the power of the you know capital T capital C church in the West. But what that ended up doing is further pushing people away from a deeper connection to the whole system, right? Again, we see these corollaries and in, in, in obviously in religion and in, in Judaism. So I could argue it started 400 years ago, but really for probably the past 20, 25 years, we've seen the beginnings of the intertidal and we are now like very much in it. And I think, you know, not, and I don't mean this in a, I don't, I do political stuff, but I say this in a non-political way. I think where we see the country right now in terms of trying to define who we are and what we are and what we're heading towards all as very uh, obvious to me manifestations of larger narratives of the American dream of industrialization, even of, of late capitalism, those manifest in what we see in be it a Trump rally or fights on Twitter, but it's kind of the dislocation of identity and meaning across the board, whether you're, you know, non-college educated white or college educated white on the coast or African-American in the middle of the country, all of these things are kind of playing out and say intertidal. Does that, does that kind of place us in time? It, it does on a, on a U.S. basis, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering, is there a distinction in sort of what you look at and how you look at it between a global trend, right? So you could say you, there could be an argument of we're moving off of the Westphalian model, right? We're, we're moving away from state sovereignty. We're moving to a global area or, or, or a fight over that. There could be multiple outcomes globally. And then you need to look at some real differences between what that means in China and their system of government, not what that means in Europe, what that means here, um, versus sort of uh, what's happening to the civil society of America specifically. Um, you know, yeah. where, 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 how do you sort of look at that context? So, uh, in you know, yes and, right? Those of us who came up through design thinking, that's how we're going to answer it. Um, that's why I keep saying, like, when I say the West, I mean the kind of Westphalian, Bretton Woods, neoliberal world order shaping West, but also the larger West of kind of global North, like I said, probably going back to 1450s in Medici. 
all that being said, and you raise a really good point, is that in this intertidal, it doesn't necessarily mean all things are failing, right? We're, we're moving into this, especially vis-a-vis the China model. There, There's a very, I am not sure, the jury is out, that the Western American-led democratic order is fully up to the challenge of what we're going to be facing just even just in terms of climate change, let alone job and identity dislocation caused by AI machine learning, and then throw biotechnology into there and it gets even more crazy. And so I look at the what we'll call the China model of governance or lack thereof in some ways, and the surveillance state and the and the and the giving up of certain civil liberties in exchange for uh, stability. And that is a model that is going to become increasingly attractive globally. And we're already seeing that, whether it's top-down driven by autocrats and nations you know, along Belt and Road Initiative, or whether it's just people saying, I'd rather have a China model than, let's say, ongoing January 6th in perpetuity, right? And so... At all, we'll look at the yellow vests in Europe and this connected to climate change and fuel prices, what Macron was trying to do. To me, is all there's a global intertidal. It just looks slightly different. And, and, and on the final, my final point on your great point is are we moving into a post Westphalian system, right? It's only 400 years old, right? The nation state. And even the, even the fact that you could ask that question is in and of itself an intertidal question that that you could ask it and it's not a fringe question um to me says it's the nation say i could i was invited it's a weird story i was invited to what i thought was a very small dinner what i thought was a very large party for henry kissinger and ended up being like 10 of us it was a birthday dinner a couple of years ago and this was rich this was the point that i brought up and go oh we're moving into a post-westphalian da 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 and he just went after me and tore me apart for like 15 minutes. He's like, the nation state isn't going anywhere. In fact, da, da, da. and I realized he, I'm not going to get into my argument with, with, with Kissinger, but the, 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 he is a Westphalian person, sees it through that lens. But you, you know, you're, you're probably a third the age of Kissinger. And you can ask that question with a straight face because you're really thinking about it, right? And so these are the shifts to me that are very intertidally. So are, how do how do what should people be caring about? So we talked about this common thread. Uh, and when you're advising institutions and you're advising governments, like what are the signals that they should be looking for that things are just going to you know, the, the, these key indicators? Uh, you know, are they universal? Are they sector specific? Like, like, tell us a little bit more about that work with them and how how that goes. So the, 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 the matrix by which we kind of look at those signals writ large are what we call megatrends, right? You, you've, you know, the book was written years ago. Everyone, every, you know, PricewaterhouseCooper has their megatrends. McKinsey has theirs. Longpath has theirs. Ours tend to be slightly different than the others because whereas other folks' megatrends will mostly hone in on technology. For, it's a lot of tech megatrends, right? Um Ours are much larger. So I'll, I'll give you an example of kind of the signals that we look at and then how that can lead, how that manifests in an intertidal. And by the way, those signals are never, and megatrends themselves, it's for myself because of the position that I take with the folks that we work with, be it major philanthropists, which we work with major philanthropists and the UN and governments and companies and organizations. I try to be as neutral as possible because I don't want to create a to, to Rich's earlier point, I don't want to create a sense of a path dependency of what this megatrend is leading to. So an example of one, yeah, we could talk, I talked about AI and machine learning and 
increasing urbanization. Uh, one that I tend to bring up a lot because it goes unnoticed by most of the folks that are looking at our signals, and I think is germane to this podcast and, and to this conversation, is the is the rise in the West of the spiritual but not religious, and what that means. Right, we we've seen the Pew research, right, going back five, even actually ten years. The fastest growing cohort among younger folks is those who are saying, "I'm not religious, but I am spiritual." Now that number's always been there; it's just growing because usually it levels out, and they have kids, and then they join their mainstream, you know, their parents' religion again. That's not happening as much across the board, especially around in the monotheistic faiths, and so. We look at those signals and say, okay, if that's happening, if, if folks don't have a, a, an outlet and a place to plug into a community that's about something beyond the utilitarian, it's not LinkedIn, it's about something bigger than themselves, it's what, you know, with spiritual, and we can have another podcast about where that actually manifests and to, to what end that in and of itself, if they don't have that, they're going to seek it somewhere else. This, this connection to something bigger than themselves, this homo sapien desire to be a part of something bigger than their own individual life. Um, I saw, I mean, you know, we, I'll, I'll go there, and I, again, I'll say this in a non-political, I was watching uh, a rally by former, or I guess President Trump, you know, and I'm like, wow, this is a religious revival. Like, this is an act, this is church for a lot of folks. Uh, it's giving the meaning and purpose and identity and why the world is going there. And by the way, I see that at certain, you know, you see that at the women's march, you see that at other marches. So it's not just a right. I, I'll put, I'll judge the one on the far right because I can. I think it leads to some things that we don't want to see in this country. But the fact of the matter is, when we look at those megatrends and those signals, we then have to step back and say, okay, if folks are going to be desirous of this megatrend, if they're moving into this in this signal, how does this play out in, in politics and in education? Uh, in the economy, in all these different areas, right? So th that's an example of a signal which is kind of baked into the mega trend that may not be one that normally kind of the classic futures will look at, but we look at very seriously because that's, we see kind of individual action uh, as a bleeding edge and culture as a bleeding edge to change, not politics or economics. That's kind of more of a trailing edge. So that's how I look at it. So when I advise folks, that's one of the things I'm I'm thinking about, uh, especially um, in America right now, as we move into this very tenuous position vis-a-vis -vis democracy and how we want to govern ourselves over the next several decades. Rich, I know you have some follow-ups here. No, a lot, plenty. I mean, the, the machine AI discussion, I think, is a really critical one uh, because that's true dislocation of the kind. That's 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 the new industrial revolution, right? So. Um, for for good and for bad and and for good and for bad is sort of the theme in my mind as you go through some of these topics because a lot of times our politics cover colors how we view good and bad cost and benefit uh and and depending on sort of our our ideology political persuasion up front we may sort of bias our decision analysis and and, and sort of the the whole tree of things that are going to come in the future yep. Climate change to me is one of those where I've talked to a lot of people on the right who acknowledge climate change, acknowledge the science, you know, dispute sort of the what's the arc of this, you know, how long do we have, et cetera. Is this an immediate crisis today or a crisis in a thousand years? And they talk about the dislocation uh, and economic impact on sub-Saharan Africa and uh, on, on, the, on the third world broadly and and 
what does it mean for our world to have a standard of you know off of oil by 2050 and 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 the, the things that'll happen over the next 20 years and economic impacts on people from there um so I'm wondering, sort of, as you look out at some of these challenges, a lot of times we, we think about one side of it um, mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, what is the implication of climate change itself and, and water issues and, and, and weather issues and, and all the other. The Navy's been thinking about this for, for you know, mm-hmm. going on 20 years now, the security implications. How do we balance that, you know, sort of the, the good, the bad, the, 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 all the different possibilities, whether you sort of, come from a perspective of, oh, I want to combat climate change, but bring in maybe downsides of, of, of the steps that people propose to do that? It's a great question. So I'll, I'll, I'll reply with an answer. Or, I'm sorry. My answer will be in the form of a story. So soon after the... Apropos of uh, sermons to come in the next yeah. week or so. So yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Go, I'm already in that headspace. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. We're talking to a lot of rabbis, actually. So <laughs> it's right at, so, so right after uh, the 2016 election... Uh, I'm asked to speak on kind of like foresight innovation to 50 startup CEOs, like to people kind of like in their 20s, maybe 30s, who have each raised at least five or $10 million for their business. And, and a venture capital firm has asked, you know, the futurists to come in and talk. And and I was I was curious about something. So, so what I put up on the, you know, the big screen behind me was a picture of an 18-wheeler uh, just going down the road, and for and and it was in in the in the back cab was like Budweiser, and I said, "Who knows what this is a photo of?" And because it's the room, every hand went up. And what it was a photo of, it was the first autonomous eighteen wheeler to drive eight hundred miles. It was carrying Budweiser. I think it was in Utah from like the 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 plant where the Budweiser was made to like a distribution center. There was a, still a driver in the seat, but it drove eight hundred miles autonomously. Right. So almost every hand went up because everyone was kind of talking about this. Oh my God, 18-wheeler drove this far. And I, and I, and I, asked, I said, okay, who, think, who here thinks this is like the most amazing thing ever? Every hand goes up. And then I say, okay, who here is disappointed with the election results? And pretty much every hand went up, right? This was folks that were very sad to see Trump elected. Okay, so okay, so you think this is amazing. You are sad about the election results. How and then I said, how many people are are employed directly or indirectly in trucking in America, right? And the numbers were like ah, hundred thousand. So the number roughly is about ten million people are connected to trucking in America. And so when those in the technology space, for instance, see saw that photo, everyone was like, this is amazing. This is the future. But when another big chunk of America sees that, they go, how am I going to make my mortgage payment? How am I going to send my kid to college? Right. And so it's important that as we look at these kind of mega trends that are happening, be it in AI or jobs, the things that one group may think is amazing may have the exact opposite impact and effect on others. And it's, and it's again, incumbent upon folks like myself, but also for like politicians and leaders to address that there are downsides to any given action. And we have to take those folks into account. Just like when we say we're going to close all the coal mines, the first thing I think of is, yeah, I, by the way, for what it's worth, I'm a hardcore climate change guy. Like this, we have to make immediate action. Like we're going to, you know, the methane in Siberia, like I am that guy. At the same time, when I'm in a room with folks and they're like, we should close every coal mine tomorrow, I go, great. Uh, 
who's taking care of all the towns in Appalachia? Or if we're thinking about fracking in Texarkana or any of these, great. Like these are fathers and uncles and moms. And these are people who are like, tell me about, tell me about what the transition looks like. And so that, that's the point that I'm getting to is, especially in terms of climate change, as we think about a just transition from a fossil fuel-based economy, which isn't just about energy, it touches actually everything from national security to education. As we think about that transition over the next five to 20 years, if we are not thinking about it in a full spectrum way, we are going to consistently find ourselves in political uh, I, and identity and a whole sorts of battles that those of us who care about climate change, because we care about the long-term flourishing of the planet and our species, we're going to lose those battles if we don't think about it in that way. And that's just in the West. And, and Ridgie, to your earlier point, this obviously also has kind of global uh, manifestations that we're not even thinking about. Right. And I think, I think uh, you know, all right. I was telling Rich before, uh, whenever I get done with a conversation with you, I always feel like I have more questions than answers, and I, th- I think you're doing it for us today. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about some of your work prior to Long Path, because I happen to know that you were the architect of what I think is one of the greatest political advertising campaigns ever when Barack Obama first ran for president called The Great Schlep, which actually uh, got Sarah Silverman, among others, to target Jewish grandchildren to get with their family members in Florida and other places and talk to them about about voting for Barack Obama. So, so what was that like? And and what was it like working with Sarah Silverman? Because like, how do you even keep a straight face when you're, you know, you're in the planning meeting? Well, so, you know, what might seem to your listeners like just like a pivot to something else is not a pivot to something else. These are actually a continuation of you know, so we talked earlier at the very beginning, like, are you a futurist? Like, yeah, I do a lot of work in foresight. To me, it's about kind of, it's about strategy. And it's like, how do you get to where you want to get to, right? And so what I want to get to is folks thinking seriously about their decisions that they make today and the long-term impact on generations to come. That's why there's long path becoming the great ancestors are future needs. If we think about the great schlep, it was the same thing, right? It was, how do we get folks to reconsider the impact of their decision on future generations. And what we found was that when the campaigns were going specifically to older Jews in South Florida, whether it was, you know, Dem or Republican, they weren't kind of breaking through because they weren't, they were speaking to them either through fear or through language that didn't make sense. And what we found was when we said like, well, who do you want to listen to? And, and you'll see the connection between Long Path and the Great Schlep. It was like, we want to listen to the next generation. We want to listen to our grandkids. And we realized at that point, it wasn't about activating the grandparents. It was about activating the younger generation to speak to their grandparents why their decision was going to be so important. So the, the connection between the Great Schlep and the Great Schlep and Long Path, although the distance may be between the Great Schlep and the writing of the book, 12 years, it's part of a much, it, it's part of a continual kind of arc and thread in terms of how I think, which is transgenerationally, which is something that as a culture, especially rich in, in America, we have, I don't know if we've ever had it, but as long as I've been paying attention the past 20, 30 years, we don't have that, right? We don't take care of our kids until they get into kindergarten. We have like no pre-K basically in this, we don't even think about that or, or mothers or working parents. And then we take our old people, we kind of put them in senior homes and we're all about like our own kind of peak in the bell curve of the lifespan. 
and both in the and I saw that in the Great Schlep, that was something that we could we could work with and leverage and open and expose, and and have people rethink. And in the same way with Long Path, it's about how do we get folks to rethink outside of their own bubble called their own life, right? There's a part I talk about in in the book about what I call lifespan bias. And I've had people emailing me and sending you know, messages saying they never thought about it that way. But we're very, very focused on, be it for Rich, Jared, or Ari, our own life from birth to death and what we can and can't do. But that is the, you know, I was just in LA going by the synagogue and it's huge letters, the door of a door, like generation, generation. And it's like, what seems so obvious and, and what, what our scholars and rabbis got so right in Judaism was this idea of overlapping generations of knowledge and moral and ethical behavior, but not as distinct units, but as kind of baton passing as opposed to individual races. And so the Great Schlep was very much built around that same kind of thinking, long patches, let me get it to a, to a more refined point, to your to your pop culture question around Sarah Silverman, she's amazing. She's brilliant. She's funny. She's like, she sees the world, um, of course, I'm going to say this, very Jewishly, right? She can see in, in situations that are uncomfortable and kind of like elephant in the room, she can go there because when she goes there, it's about finding the kind of direct humanness and human connection within whatever that supposedly dark issue is. I think that's part of what has allowed our our people for many generations, especially when people have been after us and have killed us and have done so much. One of the things that allowed us to exist in in diaspora for so long is being able to see the world differently. And more often than not, that that differently comes through with, with humor. It, the way you frame a lot of that, it, it strikes me um, in the national security space, when we look at grand strategists um, who are some of the best in, in sort of making predictions, it, many, many oftentimes they are historians um, by, by training, uh, and they're really looking at key trends in various periods of history and understanding key indicators what should we be looking for here to say, okay, based on what is happening today, where did we see this before in history? And this is what happened last time. It could be predictive. Um, to what extent are you seeing key areas of either American history or human history where you're like, these are the these are the three or four sort of transitions in the past where I'm seeing similar things today? You know, to what extent is your futurism based on history um, for, for certain trends. One I'll give you, uh, I just had a conversation with somebody about this, where they said um, Lincoln, um, in his generation, this is now at some point, late 1830s, I guess, is already talking about the distance of American civil society from the revolution and, and the uh, fraying of a national common unity and not having those people from that generation available to talk to, to lead, to inspire us. Um, and in foreshadowing, you know, obviously throughout his time that we would come to a period of, uh, of the civil war. And one strategist sort of told me, you know, he sees a lot of similarities today in no longer having the world war two generation around uh, our distance from, from that uh, shared identity uh, in, in in how we see it's fraying a civil society, do, do you see it similarly? Are there other areas where you where you make those kind of connections? Say, you know, we've sort of been through this before. We just it's a little different because of technology and and personalities and 
things have obviously changed, but at the at the core, they're not dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, so the example you just gave is the first one that was going to come to mind when you started raising the question. I, I, I tend to go, so yes on history, but I take it in a slightly different direction because I, t- and you've heard me say this uh, several times, which can throw people off, but I often refer to us as homo sapiens, right? Which already people are like, well, you've, like, what is, why, right? So I, I view us on a, you know, we've been at this for, depending on who you talk to, somewhere between 150 to 200,000 years, right? And, you know, the book is, the sub subtitle of the book is an antidote to short-termism. So people often say, well, short-termism is, is it all bad? I said, no, if, you know, if Ari and Rich and Jared are walking in the Serengeti 20,000 years ago and a large animal comes after us, we should react very quickly uh, and we should be short-termistic about it. And we shouldn't sit there and have a biblical exegesis on why is this animal chasing us? Um, at the same time, I think about the 1920s uh, and 30s and the Treaty of Versailles and, and Germany and what's happening with large segments of the population um, in America right now with, in terms of loss of identity and dignity and respect. And even if those came about because of false reasons, because of kind of, you know, be it supremacist or patriarchal or whatever it is, we have to take into account as homo sapiens who live in a hierarchical order of alphas and beta in the way that we have designed ourselves as kind of very smart primates, I look at all the examples about when that starts to fall apart. So at the at the end of the Roman Empire, we move into the Middle Ages, which were once called the Dark Ages. Like the the loss of identity and narrative in terms of a larger purpose is what I obviously keep coming back to when I talk about the book, because I see us in that same moment. And so when I look at whether that happened in the 1920s in Germany or or in some ways in America right now or the fall of Constantinople, I always say, okay, what happens in those moments are people will seek a strong man or anyone who will give them a larger sense of purpose and meaning in their life. And I see that happening over the past, I don't know, several thousand years. All right, all right. Get excited. We're ready for the lightning round. Oh, yes. Okay, so the lightning round is where we ask you a couple questions to get a little bit of a, a sense of uh, who you are and your kishkas. Um, but it's a lot of fun, um, just to give you like a more human hu- human aspect, so people uh, get a little bit more of a sense. So the first one is, what is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And profanity is allowed as long as it's in another language. Another language. I mean, we, we've already said it, unfortunately. It's it's schlep, right? Like, to me, like, that's what we do. Like, I schlep my family around. Like, there was the great schlep. It's this idea. It's like, it's you do what you got to do, right? And it's going to suck, but you got to do it. But, you know, uh, my, my, my father-in-law, my late father-in-law, Oliver Shalom, used to say he wanted on his tombstone, born to schlep. Yeah. Cause he... <laughs> and, like, Rich. we do it. And you do yeah. it. And, like, you, you schlep, but... As bad as it sounds, it's actually not that bad. You, it's not that you do it, you don't do it with a grin, but you're like, yeah, this is this is it. This is this is life. You know, it's kind of the Sisyphean way. Yeah. Okay. Next lightning round question: Your favorite book that you've read recently that is not your own? I would say uh, it is a book called *The Rural Renaissance: Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power*, which sounds uh, by Michelle Moore. It sounds uh, kind of dry. But what's fascinating is it's a world I don't know. Like, I'm a coastal elite Jew, (laughs) 
right? And so, <laughs> and you own like, it, which is so nice. Well, I'm like, I mean, that's it is what it is. And you know, it, it's the first book that it talks about kind of policy and electrification in rural, and you know, all these kind of things that, that it's not necessarily the world I'm I'm in. And in in the acknowledgement section, she says, I'll just say. I would like to praise God and express my gratitude as a Christian whose faith is central to my sense of purpose and why I do this work. Like I, um, to me, someone who can do this kind of work that is about the future, but can do it embedded within a kind of historical religious context and own it and it not be from the right is, is very powerful for me. All right. Favorite place to eat in the five boroughs. I know you don't live in the five boroughs anymore, but you did for a long time. Favorite place to eat in the five boroughs? The bougie answer, obviously, is Gramercy Tavern, because that was the first restaurant I ever ate at in New York City. Okay, what's the non-bougie answer? You know, much to the chagrin of some folks who were afraid of this taking over, I honestly, shockingly as it sounds, uh, you know, with an Ashkenazi stomach, I would say uh, any really good taco truck. doesn't even matter. If there's a line up for a taco truck in Midtown, you should get in that line. All right, Rich, you got one more to close us out? All right, uh, historical figure who was a futurist, but not called one, that you look to for inspiration. At some point he was called this, but it would have been uh, the the teacher and professor that my mom was studying under for a while, which was Buckminster Fuller, who came up with the geostatic dome and this idea of a trim tab, which is in the book, and why he was a kind of favorite that I look up to is he was never afraid of speaking truth to a situation if he thought it would be in service of future generations and their ability to flourish, regardless of whatever, whoever he was talking to. And he would always do it in a way that was non-threatening and not meant to make anyone feel bad, but to help them see the bigger ethical moral picture. Ari Wallach, author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, An Antidote for Short-Termism. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, Rich, I'll tell you what. I am glad there are Ari Wallachs in this world who are thinking these big questions, thinking about these big questions, thinking about the answers, writing books, contributing to the debate, and forcing us to think about our uh, general-held beliefs and how we can question them, how to look at different sides of the problem. I thought particularly Ari, when he talked about... uh, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels, what that means and how even if you're somebody on the left who's who's for radical change in the way we get energy, that we really need to be considering how that affects people who are in these businesses and, and what that means for society, not just for good. I think it's important for folks like Ari to be forcing us to have these conversations and think these thoughts. History will forever remember the futurists. Two futurists walk into a bar and made history. I don't know. I'm trying to develop some sort of futurist joke, there. joke maybe, line. Maybe that, you know, maybe over Yunt if you could think about that. Um, anyway, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.